0: Lord, thank you for the ways you've opened up this space for us today, this time for us. You've made time for us to make time for you and for one another. I pray that you will help us to hear what it is that you are saying to us and help us to respond boldly and confidently. We pray this in the name of Christ and by the power of the Spirit. Amen. Pentecost seems to be about the coming of the Spirit, but it's easy to misunderstand that. What it does not mean is that the Spirit was absent before and now has become present. I'm convinced that most of my students, hopefully this is not true of you, but most of my students believe that when we say we believe in God as Father, Son, and Spirit, what we really believe in are two men and a bird. There is the father, who's the older male, the son, who's the younger male, who looks a lot like the father, but he doesn't have a gray beard. He's got you know, a fully healthily colored beard. You've seen the, the painting Walter Solomon's Head of Christ, He's got this luxurious, freshly shampooed hair. And then the Holy Spirit is a bird. And that on Pentecost, what happens is essentially Jesus and the Holy Spirit pass each other on their way. Right? Jesus is on his way out to wherever the Father is, and the Holy Spirit comes and replaces him. And that is silly, of course, but if you press just a little bit past kind of superficial convictions, that's not far from what most of us have been taught to think. That Pentecost is this moment in which the spirit who had been absent is now present and Jesus who had been present is now absent. So that now we live with the Holy Spirit here. Someday Jesus will come back. But that's not at all what Pentecost is. Pentecost is not about the coming of a previously absent spirit or the absence of a previously present Jesus. It's about a new presence of the spirit who's always been present so that we can be present to Jesus and he can be present to us in a new way. The Spirit does not replace Jesus. The Spirit makes it so that we are placed in him and he is placed in us as he is in God. The claim is is so much more astounding. The Spirit doesn't replace Jesus. The Spirit places Jesus in us and us in Jesus so that Christ in us is the hope of glory and our life is in Christ hidden in God. That's what Pentecost is about. The Spirit is always working from the beginning. The Spirit is hovering over the waters. The Spirit is brooding over the earth, bringing about creation. The Spirit makes it so that there is Israel and makes it so that there is Mary and makes it so there is the womb of Mary and the son of her womb so that when Christ comes, he can pour that same Spirit out upon us in a new way. So Pentecost is not the coming of the Spirit so much as it is the coming in a new way of the Spirit who is always there. And that's true not only of Pentecost, but it's true of our entire lives. You exist at all only because the Spirit was there for you. You exist at all only because the Spirit was already at work. But over and over in the course of your life, what you experience is, what you should be experiencing, what I should be experiencing is a Pentecost, where that Spirit who's always already been there is there in a new way, and a new way that makes it so that I'm in Christ and Christ is in me. In the Old Testament reading for the day, we read the story of Moses and the 70 elders, or the 72, depending on how you read the story. So Moses' father-in-law, Jethro, has said to him, listen, you can't bear all these responsibilities by yourself. You have to gather a team around you. And so they gather 70 elders from Israel or 72, depending on how you read the story. And they gather around Moses in a circle, and God appears to him and speaks to him and says, I'm going to take the spirit that's on you, and I'm going to give parts of it to each of these 70. And he does. And when he does, the parts of Moses' spirit that go upon these 70 elders, they immediately prophesy once and then never prophesy again. But two, and we're not sure if these are 69 and 70 or 71 and 72, two of them are in the camp and they don't make it to the tent. And they stay in the camp prophesying. They're always these two people. You know, in Corinth, there were the people who, were, who said they followed Paul, and others followed Peter, and some followed Apollos. But then there were those people that they didn't follow any man. They followed Jesus. Like the super obnoxious people that I want to punch in the throat, right? That group. They're the ones who are in the camp prophesying. And Joshua is irate. And he comes to Moses and says, listen, these two cats are there prophesying. They're doing, this is your job. You're the prophet." And Moses says, I wish all God's people were prophets. Don't stop them. All of us should be. And what happens on Pentecost is that all become prophets. Luke goes out of his way to say that each of them had a tongue of fire upon his head or her head. And all of them were filled with the Spirit. And all of them prophesied. And all of them spoke in these languages. So this is that moment. Moses' prayer has come to pass. But we're not receiving the spirit of Moses. We're receiving the spirit of Jesus. The Holy Spirit is God in God's fullness, personally given to us, so that what we're receiving, John says of Jesus that he was given the spirit without measure, a measureless baptism of the spirit, utterly immersed, saturated in the life of the spirit. And then Jesus says, Father, I pray that what you have given me, will be given to them, that we will be given that share in the Spirit's life to be absolutely saturated with the fullness of God so that all of God's people can be prophets. That is what Pentecost is about. But there are a lot of ways in which I think Pentecostals and Charismatics have misunderstood what the life of the Spirit is about. The first and maybe most basic misunderstanding is that we've thought that the work of the spirit, the power of spirit, the power of Pentecost is so that we can make the life we want for ourselves. But that is not, that is not the gospel of Pentecost. The gospel of Pentecost is not that you've been filled with power so that you go out and live the life you want to live, that you can have your best life now. That's not the gospel of Pentecost. The gospel of Pentecost is you've been empowered to live Christ's life for your neighbor. One of the things that strikes me about the story in Acts 2 is that they are caught, the disciples are caught up in this moment of ecstatic worship. They are overcome. They're raptured in praising God, so enraptured that everyone thinks they're drunk. Everyone thinks they're out of their minds. They're beside themselves, and they gather to watch the absurdity of it, the craziness, And Peter stops his praising to explain. At the heart of Pentecost is even when I am caught up in the raptures of adoring God, when there are those who need to know what's happening, I leave my gift at the altar and I turn to them. Because Pentecost is not about me and the Holy Spirit. It's about the work of God in my neighbor's life. The life of the people of God is not a life about us receiving the fullness of God, full stop. It's about us receiving the fullness of God so that that fullness can flow through us to those whom God cherishes and delights in. And we have to be people who, like Peter, know when to stop adoring, stop being ecstatic, stop celebrating and worshiping, and say, wait a minute, do you know what's happening here? This is not that, it's this. Now, one of the things that's interesting to me is that you've got two groups of people here observing what's happening. You've got the group who are amazed, bewildered, they're curious. They are drawn toward what's happening with the the apostles and the disciples. And then you have the crowd that jeers. You have those who are repelled by it, who are offended by it. But Peter addresses both of them without judgment. He doesn't condemn them for their judgments. He doesn't Laud them for their curiosity. He just says, let me tell you what this is. This is not drunkenness. It's only nine o'clock in the morning. What do you think we are? This is what Joel prophesied. And then notice what Joel prophesied. He prophesied about how what belongs to God is going to belong to everyone. Man and woman, adult and child, sons and daughters, mothers and fathers, slave and free, everyone. Everyone is going to be included in what God has with God. That's how Pentecost turns us. We prayed it today. Pentecost does not direct us up and away from the world. It moves us out into the world. The movement on the day of Pentecost is from the upper room, down into the courts of the temple, and out into the streets. And what happens immediately after this is that they begin to gather, to break bread together, and to teach, and then Fights break out amongst them over whose widows are being cared for properly, but the movement is always out toward the world. And all the way through the book of Acts, we're moving out from Jerusalem, out from the upper room, out from the temple toward Rome and the uttermost parts of the earth, which is exactly what Jesus told them would be. That's what the Pentecostal life looks like. It's not a life that's utterly absorbed in the vertical. It's a life in which the vertical and the horizontal are shaped as one. And everything that God is doing in us immediately moves out to those around us. Think of it like this. Jacques Ellul, who was a French philosopher and theologian, said it like this. The Holy Spirit presses us into full responsibility. The Holy Spirit presses us into full responsibility. And I love this this word responsibility because you can think of it as, first of all, being able to respond. That what the Spirit awakens in us is responsibility to God and to neighbor. Attunes us to what God is like, to what God wants, to what God purposes, and attunes us to our neighbor. Attunes us to what they need, whether our neighbor is jeering at us or our neighbor is applauding us. Whatever their questions happen to be, to be people of the Spirit is to be tuned in to hear those questions rightly. To recognize what you're asking needs to be answered. And I'll stop my adoration in order to communicate that. Rowan Williams has said it this way, that the day of Pentecost is about the two most basic facts of the Christian life, adoration and compassion. Adoration and compassion. Adoration in that we are falling in love with God. We are overwhelmed with delight in who God is. But the kind of adoration that moves us into feeling what our neighbor feels to sharing their passions and rejoicing with those who rejoice and weeping with those who weep. At the same time, that's the Christian life. The Christian life is because we're surrounded all the time by people who are experiencing joys, they're experiencing highs, they're experiencing delights, and at the same time, we have other people who are experiencing lows, who are experiencing brokenness, who are experiencing loss, and as the people of God filled with the Spirit of God, we are to share with both of them in their passions. And that's what Pentecost makes possible, to be people who are that expansive, who are that roomy, that there is room in our lives to care for those who are rejoicing and for those who are weeping at the same time. Because sometimes, and this is where human being is particularly complex, sometimes the same people are experiencing joys in one part of their life and sorrows in others. That's just what it means to be human. And to be people of the Spirit is to be attuned to all of that. To be responsible to all of that. Did you notice in the gospel today, Jesus told the disciples, he breathed on them, said receive the Holy Spirit, and then he said, if you forgive others' sins, they are forgiven. And if you do not, they are not. Now we we Protestants, now that's just, that shouldn't be in the Bible, let's just be honest. I mean, it was Jesus, I know, but surely he didn't mean that. But what if he did? What if... Later in 1 John, we're told that if you see a brother or sister sinning a sin, and you ask, they will be forgiven. What if I were to tell you that Jesus says, the apostle John says, Scripture says that your responsibility to your neighbor includes seeing their sin and praying for their forgiveness. Isn't that exactly what Abraham does when he sees Sodom? Doesn't he immediately pray for their forgiveness? Forgiveness? Isn't that exactly what Moses does when God tells him he's going to destroy Israel? Moses says, no, if you're going to destroy them, destroy me too. Forgive them. Find a way to forgive them. Isn't that exactly what Jesus does as he is being crucified? Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Isn't that exactly what Stephen, the first martyr, does when he's being stoned to death and cursed? He's looking into heaven and sees Christ at the right hand of the Father and says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. This is the heart of the Christian life to be attuned to people, even in their sins, against us. And what comes from us is a prayer of forgiveness. God, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. That's the kind of responsibility that we have to have. And when the Spirit is present, what comes from us is nothing less than the life of Christ. So you noticed when we were reading Acts 2, there was a reference to this violent wind and the fire that descends upon them. And this is, there are several intertextual echoes here. It's almost certainly echoing the story of Elijah in the cave, where he first sees the whirlwind and then sees the fire and finally hears the still small voice. But it's also almost certainly referencing the day that the law is given, the day in which fire settles on the Mount Sinai and a a storm tears the rocks and God declares what we know is the Ten Commandments, and then gives the law. But what's happening on the day of Pentecost is that law is being written into the hearts of these people, exactly like Ezekiel promised, exactly like Jeremiah prophesied, that now that law is written into them so that it's not something external that they're trying to live. It's not something they're trying to perform. It's their very nature. And Ezekiel has this astonishing image. He says, Speaking for God, that I will take out of them their heart of stone and I will give them a heart of flesh. Take out of them the heart of stone and give them the heart of flesh. What's the image? You're being made response able. A stone doesn't know when it's being touched, but a heart of flesh recognizes when the need of the neighbor is pressing on it. You say you love God whom you have not seen and do not love your neighbor whom you have seen. You're lying. Because if your heart has been filled with the Holy Spirit, your heart will be touched by their needs. You can't not be touched by their needs. You can't resist the compassion that comes when you're touched by their needs. And just as surely as Jesus is moved with compassion, to be filled with the Holy Spirit is to be moved with compassion. When you see others rejoicing, you can't not rejoice When you see others weeping, you can't not weep. That's what it means to be responsible. That's what the Holy Spirit is moving us into. Just a couple points I want to make, and I'll I'll be out of your way. One of the major mistakes I think Pentecostal charismatic people of the Spirit types tend to make is that they tend to think of the world as two-tiered. The lower tier, which doesn't matter much at all, is the natural realm. And then there's the supernatural realm, where all the stuff that really matters happens. And there is some truth to this accounting of things, no doubt. There is is a difference between the natural and the supernatural. But where we go wrong is when we think that the Holy Spirit is somehow contained within the supernatural. As if the natural just goes on on its own, and then the supernatural is where the Holy Spirit is active. But hear me, the Holy Spirit is transcendent of both supernatural and natural. There is a lot of supernatural reality but the spirit's not contained in it and there's a lot of natural reality but the spirit is not limited or kept out of it or kept in it the spirit is in the natural and the spirit is in the supernatural thomas aquinas almost 900 years ago preached a sermon on pentecost sunday from these texts and one of the things he says about the holy spirit is he says the holy spirit is the hidden source of all good the hidden origin of all good That's how you have to think about what it means to be filled with the Spirit. It means in the most natural things and in the most supernatural things, the Holy Spirit is at work. In things that seem absolutely mundane, that seem throwaway, there is a hidden origin of goodness at work. And in things that seem outlandish and bizarre, the Holy Spirit may be at work. Now, let me just make make this clear to you. I believe in weirdness. This is not some kind of rationalizing away of the bizarre. I I think God works in bizarre ways. And I'm, I speak in tongues more than you all, as Paul says. Right? I, I'm not afraid of the weirdness. But what I am afraid of is identifying the weirdness as the only way the Spirit works. Let me give you an example of how, how I think weirdness works. I have a colleague. She was telling this story about how when she was writing her PhD, she had this incredibly low moment, and she, just, she was about to give up. She goes to this Pentecostal church, And during the sermon, the pastor comes off the pulpit and down the stage and into the audience and gives a word of prophecy to this woman who's sitting right in front of my colleague. And she's like, now, I guess his radar was just a little bit off because that was clearly a word for me. And he gave it to the woman right in front of me. So I'm weird enough to think maybe there's a blast radius to the work (laughs) of God, right? That even if the prophet gets it a little bit wrong, if I'm in the blast radius... If all I get is a shockwave, it's still for me, right? I'm open to weirdness, right? I'm open to weirdness. I had a, a man come up to me once after a sermon that I gave, not here, but after a sermon I gave, and he said that he had had a dream about me the night before, and that in that dream, two Christians from an underground church in China had appeared to him and told him to tell me that God had called them to pray for me. I'm open to that. I'm open to that. Right? I'm open to weirdness, but what I'm not open to is thinking that that's somehow more the work of the Spirit than the conversation you and I might have over coffee. I'm not open to thinking that when I'm praying that way, when I'm praying in tongues more than all of you, that that's somehow more the Holy Spirit than when we're praying the Lord's Prayer together. The Spirit is at work in everything as the hidden origin of good. It's And it's that hidden origin of good that matters. It's not... The noise that I hear, the sound and the fury that matters. What matters is that whatever's going on in my life, whether it's high or low, whether it's supernatural or natural, what matters is that the Holy Spirit is at work in ways that I can't identify and don't need to identify, but simply trust. There's this glorious image of this from the building of Solomon's Temple, in which we're told that there was not a sound of an iron tool in all the building of the temple. They never heard the sound of an axe or a hammer or a chisel any iron tool, that's an image of how the Spirit works in our life. He's building all the time, but that doesn't mean you're going to hear it. And the things that seem to be important to you and to me only seem to be important because of where we are in our maturation, where we are in our development. But from God's perspective, the most important work he's doing in our life is work we don't know anything about. This is what he says, right? Paul says, it is not entered into the mind of man what God is preparing for us. You are praying for God to do this, that, or the other, but what God is doing for you is so good, you can't even think to pray for it. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. And we have to realize that's not true of just me. That's true of everyone that we meet. He is, as Nicholas Cabasal says, a mystic, medieval mystic, says he, the Holy Spirit, is more affectionate than any friend, more just than any ruler, more loving than any father, more a part of us than our own limbs more necessary to us than our own hearts. He's the hidden origin of good. And because of that, we have to recognize that the Holy Spirit is not limited to the sacred or the pious. The Holy Spirit is at work in everyone, everywhere, always. When I lived in Oklahoma City, driving home from work every day, I drove right between these two almost identical houses, one of which was a church of God, our church of Christ, and one of which was a tarot card reading house, a medium. And I, was ne- I never failed to be struck by the, the oddity of it. I'm driving right between them. They're almost identical houses right across from each other. And then it hit me one day. I have to believe that no matter who goes in which house, my God is tracking them. No matter what they think they're doing, no matter what they think is happening, My God is tracking them. Not all roads lead to God, but God can find you whatever road you're on. He's seeking you out, and no matter what it is that's leading you where, the hidden origin of good in your life is working to bring you into the fullness of God's promise for you. When I was in Shawnee, Oklahoma, I got lost in Shawnee, Oklahoma. I'm not a functional adult. I'm not a competent person. Um, I have some friends and former students here. They can testify I'm not a a functioning colleague. Don knows I'm not a functioning adult. I got lost in Shawnee, Oklahoma, but I think it was the Holy Spirit. I think I'm that weird. And here's why. Because I found, in being lost, this church, it was a shotgun church made out of cinder blocks. And on the side of the road, there was a sign made out of plywood, two pieces of wrought iron and baling wire, and they had stenciled the name of the church onto the plywood. The name of the church was Greater Vision Church. Now, that's especially sweet in irony when you realize that they stenciled it on, but they didn't lay out the letters beforehand. So on this side of the sign, where they began, they, they were wanting, obviously, to arc the name, so it starts at the bottom left, and the G is probably about this size. By the time we get to the top, of the sign the r is about like this so again i don't want to you know be too blunt here they didn't have enough vision to lay out the stenciling on the sign that's made of plywood outside their cinder block church not long after that my wife and i were in london at st paul's cathedral for evensong the most beautiful experience of my life absolutely rapturous i mean I'm sure all of those Anglicans were wondering what this Pentecostal was doing, speaking in tongues in the middle of all of that. But hey, like I said, I'm into the weird. And it was astonishingly beautiful. But the truth of the matter is, even though I was moved to tears in one way by Greater Vision Church and moved to tears in a very different way by St. Paul's Cathedral and Evensong, the Holy Spirit was no more at work here in a cathedral that's 1,200 years old than he was in some little poorly made, poorly considered church in Shawnee, Oklahoma. And the truth is, it's not that's not only about congregations, it's about people. Some of us, some of the time, are St. Paul's Cathedral kind of people, and most of us, most of the time, are greater vision kind of people. We don't have enough sense to even lay out the stenciling on our sign. But there is a hidden origin of goodness at work, even in those of us who don't know how to lay out stenciling. When Don and I were in Amsterdam, which... We could tell a lot of stories about that, but won't. But we were in Amsterdam together, what's it been, 10 years, something like that? There was a moment we were looking at this cathedral, and just absolutely gorgeous. But to see, to see it, to get far enough back, to see to the peak of the steeples, we had to put our backs against a brothel. We were standing up against it to look at this cathedral. But the truth of the matter is, our Holy Spirit, this hidden origin of goodness, is no more at work in that cathedral in front of us than in that brothel behind us. And until we recognize that our God is that relentlessly in love with his creatures, we can't truly be Pentecostal. We will want to have church instead of be in the church. We will want to come to adore God instead of being compassionate with those who need it. But once we recognize that when the spirit falls, what that does is turn us not away from the world and up toward God, but out toward the world, face to face with our neighbors so that we can say to them, no, this isn't that, it's this. When that happens, we know that we are truly people of the spirit. And so I end with this. In 1968, Patriarch Ignatius, who's an Orthodox bishop, gave a, a, a sermon at the Gathering of the World Council of Churches. And he ended that sermon with this poem that he wrote, and I'm going to end my sermon with his poem as well. Without the Holy Spirit, God is far away. Christ stays in the past. The gospel is a dead letter. The church is simply an organization. Authority, a matter of domination. Mission, a matter of propaganda. The liturgy, no more than a reminder of the past. Christian living, a slave morality but with the Holy Spirit. God is with us. The universe is resurrected and groans with the birth pangs of the kingdom. The risen Christ is here. The gospel is the power of life. The church is the organism, the body of the living Christ. Authority is service. Mission is Pentecost. The liturgy is both memorial and anticipation. Human action is God at work in the world. Let it be. Let it be. Pastor Janice.